Necessity is the mother of invention So get ready for a mother of a ride Gas up your laptops, your tablets and devices Cause our asses are all quarantined inside More and more every day The world just feels so very far away Less and less things to do So pull up a chair and let us talk to you I'm Summer. And I'm Cody. And this is the More and More Everyday Podcast. He's a fifth grade teacher. She's a historian. And this is a daily blog and interview series brought to you by the South Phoenix Oral History Project to capture and preserve the stories of students and teachers in the COVID-19 era. Welcome. Today's Summer Talks to Dr. Jean Beeman, Assistant Professor of Sociology at University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Beeman discusses the George Floyd protest and the relationships to COVID-19 and government responses. She talks with Summer about living through history and societal change. Dr. Jean Beeman, will you just start by introducing yourself, where you work, and what is your specialty? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, first of all. Thanks for this lovely invitation. Um, Yeah, so my name is Dr. Jean Beeman. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, So I just joined the faculty here last August, and previously I was a member of the faculty at Purdue University in Indiana. So primarily my work focuses on race, racism, and international migration in both France and the United States. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is thinking about the comparisons um, between France and the United States as it relates to race and racism. Mm -hmm. So my first book came out in 2017, which was entitled Citizen Outsider, Children of North African Immigrants in France, and it really examined or focused on a middle-class segment of the second-generation North African population in France and how they sort of understand uh, or, or sort of, you know, make sense of experiences of racism, marginalization, et cetera. And so um, that was sort of based on a lot of time I spent living in France, and I've also been trying to think about sort of the parallels between individuals who are on the margins of mainstream American society with individuals on the margins of French society. Wow, thank you very much. Well, we're excited to have you and your book. I'll link to it in the show notes okay. when your episode goes live. Um, the first question I want to ask is just, how are you doing? How are things going for you in this historical moment? Yeah, thanks for the question. It's a really important question. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts and um, speaking, you know, I, I will say I speak, you know, as a sociology professor, but also as a black woman. And so I've been thinking a lot about sort of the ways in which COVID-19 has exacerbated existing these racial and ethnic inequalities, not just in the United States, but really around the world. But then, you know, within the last week, I guess kind of after we corresponded about doing this, this program, I mean, all the events, all the uprisings that are happening currently in the United States states. Uh, the murder of George George Floyd, for example, has been um, very difficult. <laughs> I mean, there's sort of a um, kind of axiom about teaching sociology that it's not the most exciting, uh, or sort of, I should say, it is exciting, but it's not the most optimistic topic, but it's always relevant. And I definitely feel that way um, now. So I'm sort of interpreting the news that's changing, you know, every minute, every hour, in sort of light of my own sort of sociological interest in race and racism, both contemporarily and historically. So I would say, I guess, so yeah, so that's, that's one answer. And the second answer I would say is that I think, um, you know, so I think it's, it's been a challenging period um, in light of everything that's going on, for sure. 
I agree. And as a historian, I can relate to the fact that history, when taught well, is not going to be all rainbows and butterflies. It's right, right, exactly. Not optimistic, right? Right, exactly. I was, I was thinking about you today as I was getting ready, knowing your research and knowing your expertise. And um, this immediately shifts from my list of usual questions. But I, I really want to know, um, how do you think the relationship between the coronavirus and COVID-19 and the state, you know, the, the systematic state response has in some ways shaped this last week of historic events when it comes to, you know, uprisings and, and rebellion, but also um, a reclaiming, right, of, of the history. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a very uh, interesting moment thinking about the intersection between those two things. So first we have the COVID pandemic, which is a global pandemic to be sure. And so it, you know, it touches the whole globe and not just, it doesn't just touch black Americans, but I mean, there's lots of data that showed already, that showed already that, you know, black Americans have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus, you know, in terms of sort of um, being infected themselves, but also sort of, you know, the proportion of black workers uh, as essential workers. Um, so people who can sort of, afford to stay at home and self-quarantine and self-isolate, et cetera, et cetera. That juxtaposed with, an, uh, so that's sort of this new kind of thing that's uh, arose in the last few months, but that's juxtaposed or placed within a larger context of these incidents of anti-Black violence uh, by police officers or people who sort of deputize themselves as police officers. And I think, you know, I started being a professor um, in August 2014, and that was around the time of the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson and the uh, ensuing uprisings there, right? And so in some ways, I think about my actual career as a, as a sociology professor sort of in, I could chart it through various high-profile incidents such as these as, as sort of maybe macabre as that might sound. Um, but I think what's different about what's happening now or what's been happening last week that's how you see people's frustrations um, boil over from the lack of injustice, the lack of justice from previous incidents of police mm -hmm. violence, right? That also in a state in which we're um, facing a pandemic where there's sort of it's lots of uncertainty in terms of when will there be a cure, when will there be a vaccine, what does going back to normal mean, what are the implications of that? And so I think you just see, um, you know, the United States uh, specifically, I think partly because of the different ways that we've responded to COVID uh, compared to other countries, um, you know, the level of uncertainty, the, the sort of tension in the general actor compiled with something, a longstanding problem. So I think it's not, in that sense, that surprising these things kind of when intersecting kind of boil over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's been a, I can't like, <laughs> I can't even articulate it because it's so fresh these last couple of days. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And it's, and changing it's been rapidly. this like weird three months of living in history, mm -hmm. but because of the pandemic, because of the cautions we're supposed to be taking, the, the masking of ourselves, the sitting, mm -hmm. sitting behind computer screens, we're separating ourselves mm -hmm. physically from each other it feels like so many of us are experiencing this alone, mm -hmm. right? Even though there are crowds of people right. in all these big right. cities. Right, right, right. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't wait till future generations tell us yeah. what happened. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really good point. And I think thinking about sort of what is the nature of community in this moment, right, where we sort of are discouraged from being physically together, but obviously they're sort of, you know, we're all under the same pandemic. And then, you know, people who are very concerned about uh, the violence that's occurring feel united in that way. Um, and, you know, I think there's also a sort of a social media part of this. There's a 
cultural community is being created. So even people who aren't actually at protests are connecting via social media, the internet, et cetera. So that's like also part of the story. But yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about um, how this how this might shape, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, how we think about communities in general. Great, thank you. One of the things my students and I are really interested in um, has to do with the concept of the watershed moment. So things yeah. changing kind of for everyone around the same time. So when you look back on the last several months, um, can you actually pinpoint a date where it felt like everything began to shift for you on account of the coronavirus or perhaps on account of uh, George Floyd? Tell me, tell me which days seemed really significant in your recent memory. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I didn't, uh, yeah, I guess maybe I'm trying to remember the exact date because I didn't watch uh, Trump's press conference or press briefing yesterday, um, but I did see um, his comment or his tweet, I think over the weekend, if I remember correctly, about um, basically saying, you know, once the looting starts, the shooting starts and sort of invoking language that was used um, against civil rights protesters, whether he, you know, knew that intentionally or not, that's a different conversation. But, you know, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's a moment um, where you see like the president of our society invoking violence against American citizens. And so I guess I want to say, I think that's a watershed moment. I mean, I hope that that resonated with everyone as much as it resonated with me, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the only time will tell. Um, but I think in terms of thinking about, you know, this is American society being in a state of national crisis and having the leader of our society um, not uh, confront Americans with sort of empathy at all, but rather just with sort of this, uh, what I consider this very vicious animosity. Um, it's not something that we've never seen in our, in our history, but I do think that that is a watershed moment, mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of sort of how the rest of the summer is going to be in terms, or even just the rest of the year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think, I guess if I could say, if I could add on, um, I mean, I think even before this year, I would say, I think a watershed moment was, uh, the election of Donald Trump. Um, and I think just everything that's happened since has been sort of, you know, kind of, dominoes falling down since that note date as well. And this is just sort of the latest iteration of that. Yeah, I think you're right. What about in terms of the short video series you did with the magazine, um, Monitor Racism Mag? Your video was called Why Black America? And you talked about how, I love how you confronted this bizarre notion that COVID-19 is the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that from maybe if a college student's listening to this podcast, what exactly does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, in my sociology classes, and just my approach as a sociologist, and I primarily teach courses on race, ethnicity, and racism, I try to explain to students that we should be thinking about these issues not as individual level factors or characteristics, but rather as social structural phenomena or social structures or structural factors, right? And so I think, um, you know, it was, I understand why in the wake of the coronavirus, it was sort of very tempting and sort of sexy for people to say, oh, this is a great equalizer because we're all susceptible to it in the exact same ways. But that's really not a social structural analysis because, you know, before the COVID-19 crisis, we were not all in the same position in our society. 
you know, one disease is not going to change that or level that, right? I mean, so we all have, you know, we can think about this different access to healthcare. We can think about, you know, the longstanding policies of racial residential segregation, you know, the communities we live, what are we, what do we have access to in those communities and why do we have access to some amenities and not others? Um, we can think about the criminal justice system and how it sort of, you know, treats people of color different from white Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, I try to sort of remind students that sometimes these things can seem like this big umbrella that we're all in. And of course, again, it is a global pandemic, so I'm not saying that it only affects black Black Americans, but I think um, when we think about the broader, we, we place it in the context of broader sort of social structure, particularly American history, we see that it's not, everyone's not affected the same way. And one disease can't sort of level um, can't sort of make that equal, right? Um, and I think, you know, I also would, I also explained to students that even thinking um, historically, you know, moments that we sort of maybe are taught in the K through 12 system or whatever that were these sort of great equalizers often were. So for example, the New Deal, um, I think at least for me, I understood it, I think before I went to college or before I went to undergrad, as something that sort of, you know, kind of improved everyone's life in society or was accessible to everyone. And then when you sort of read, particularly what a lot of historians have, have unearthed about this, is that actually it did apply to black GIs and other populations, right? And so I think even these things that are seen to be, um, you know, something that affects everyone in American society or something accessible, accessible to everyone in American society, it often isn't, and it often isn't by design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, most of my research when I was working on my dissertation and my book was on uh, civil rights and the American oh. West, right? Okay, so yeah. So breaking yeah. a chord there with the, the, yeah. oh, yeah. okay. you know, the, the myths of de facto segregation. I mean, right. so much of that right. has to be confronted right. um, through the way that we just, you know, it's one thing for researchers to look into it, but just for everyday people to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how in four years, in part because I think of the election of Donald Trump and in part because of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. students have shifted from, they used to say things to me like, well, racism is not a big deal anymore, mm -hmm. right? And now they're so much more aware because I think it's woven into their current social media. Mm -hmm. They see things for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, as we've shifted as a society, the way we talk about these things, mm -hmm. we don't recognize like the historical implication. Yeah. We think it's a bubbling up of right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, uh, when I first started teaching, you know, when I was in grad school, it was sort of, you know, Barack Obama was the president. So in some ways, it was actually really hard to teach about racism, because students would be like, what are you talking about? We have the first black president. Right. Um, and so in some ways, it's like a lot easier to make that argument now. Um, but, you know, I think part of the issue, too, and I, if I, if I'm, if what I try to think about, like, the position that my students are in, I understand they kind of came of a public at a moment when the political consciousness was sort of, you know, Obama being president and sort of the sort of hope, I mean, that was sort of his, that was his thing that kind of alluded from that. And so for them, it's sort of like, of course, we're in a better place than we were, you know, 20, 20 50 years ago. But, you know, I think now we're sort of, it's easier to convey to students that that's not quite the case. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So from a researcher's perspective, but also from a professor's perspective, what kind of things could faculty across the country do to really support their students variety, in a variety of backgrounds? Some students who have access to things and other students who don't. What, what can we do in the next year and a half or however long this will take to be sure we're honoring the backgrounds of our students while we're trying to teach them? 
Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I mean, I think what I try to do, what I think is really important is to really see our students as full human beings and not just people who are in our classes from, you know, 75 minute to, or at least the way I teach, there's two 75 minute periods a week, right? And so, um, and so in, by that, I mean, like, it's not so much to think about, you know, students that are taking other classes besides the classes that I'm teaching, which is obviously true, but they have other commitments. Um, they, some, some of the students I have here, which are really great, our parents are, you know, um, taking care of their of their parents. I mean, the parents themselves, or they're taking care of their, uh, their own parents. Or they have other kinds of responsibilities. Some of them work several hours a week, and so I think, you know, I think that that's something that um, that kind of empathy, that kind of radical empathy that we could have, uh, we should we should have been having before this started. I do hope that that emerges from this moment as well, as we try to sort of think about how, all the different adjustments we can make and how to really respond to our students' needs as full human beings and not just that, not just as people that we'll only interact with for a quarter or semester or what have you. Is radical empathy a term you came up with? No, it's a tr- no, it's a term that my friend and colleague, uh, Nicole Gonzalez uh, Van Cleve at Brown University uh, came up with um, and sort of thinking about how particularly sociology professors, but I think obviously you can think about it beyond that, um, sure. should be should be relayed to students in this moment. So I'm happy to send you the link um, to that as well. Please do. I've never heard that before, but I yeah, found it the article, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. All right. So a little bit of a personal question. What did you do in the beginning of the quarantine to establish some semblance of normalcy in your own life? Oh, um, that's a great question. So I think um, I am very much a creature of routine, and so I think what's sort of, you know, I mean, among the many things that are complicated about this moment, it was the initial shock was sort of having my normal routines of, you know, going to my office and working and, um, uh, you know, going to my yoga classes, et cetera, et cetera, that being disrupted, trying to think about how I could establish new routines. And so, you know, I, uh, eventually that meant that I could, like, I started to, like, devote a couple hours each day to work on my writing, sort of in competition with other people, other friends in other schools. And then also, um, you know, signing up for regular Zoom classes. So I guess it's, like, building in a lot of things like that. So there's some kind of structure to my day. But the other thing I've really learned in this moment or been thinking about in this moment is the need to be kind of flexible because I think, you know, um, I think before this happened, I was the kind of person that kind of had a very strict daily routine and sort of had had multiple blocks of the day scheduled for X, Y, or Z. And I can see in retrospect how that could lead to burnout. And so I think, you know, especially because everything is just changing. And again, we don't know how long this this sort of period is going to last and what that's going to mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think just also um, extending grace to myself and being flexible with myself. You know, maybe some days I'm in a better mood and I'm more productive and I'm more social in terms of sort of, you know, um, going on walks with friends or these kind of things and other days I'm just not and sort of like sending myself sending grace to myself for that mm-hmm. that's great thank you what do you miss the most oh um gosh so many things um so I do I, I miss traveling the most I think that's the thing I miss the most so um, I usually, I travel to France to do a, the bulk of my research, so I actually was supposed to go to Paris, I think about a week 
after the lockdown was established uh, here in California. So I do miss, um, I miss international travel. I miss domestic travel. I miss flying places. I usually fly somewhere for something like once a month. And so it feels very weird to be kind of stuck in place in that, in that sense or stuck in geographic place in that sense. Yeah. And that's probably one of the things I'm most looking forward to doing. Yeah. So when you think about the vague future of when things are different, um, however you wanted to find that, what are you hoping for and what are you fearful of? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, so I, yeah, so I'll say like just as it specifically as it relates to COVID, I hope that this moment, you know, whenever we emerge on the other side of this, which of course we will, whatever that is, I hope we have a better understanding of the need for universal health care and sort of why it's really important. And I think thinking about, um, yeah, so, so yeah, just thinking about, so one of the things I've been thinking about is sort of different people's different lack of access to proper health care, not having insurance, the fact that we have an ins- uh, insurance tied to one's employment, so then, we, you know, huge swaths of Americans are laid off, they don't have um, healthcare and think about the sort of collateral damages of that. I would be, I really hope that we were able to have a, a more, a smarter conversation about that at the, at the, on the other side of this, right? Like there's a ways in which our healthcare system's been broken for a long time. And I think there's been sort of, um, you know, for both political parties, various discussions about that, but not a lot of movement forward. And I, I do feel like I really I hope that this that's one thing that will come out of um, this crisis. Um, and then the one thing I fear, um, so many things. I guess I fear, you know, I mean, right. I think, I, I guess I fear a general return to normal in every way imaginable, right? So I think that, um, yeah, so in terms of just sort of the existing inequalities that we have, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, the sort of unemployment, these kinds of things, I guess I'm worried that we will, or I fear that we won't leave this period with any sort of broad systemic structural change in our society that I think we really need. Um, you know, I don't, yeah, and I, I fear that, I think especially at this moment, and particularly thinking about the events of the last week, um, the sort of deep partisanship in our society at this moment, um, you know, I fear that that will only get worse on the other side of this. I think partly because of just different responses or perceptions of the COVID crisis and sort of the, the protests that have been happening the last few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's upsetting, right? It really is. We see these protests and we think there's hope there that on the other side of this, we could be mm-hmm. solving some of these deep historic tensions and, and, and wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with you that for every step, every swing of the pendulum, you know, ta Cook says that, right? That we swing back. Even, right. Um, right. So it's, a, it's very nerve wracking um, right. to, to not believe the optimistic. Right. Yeah. And I think it, I think it reveals, and I and like your, I appreciate your reference to ta Cook. So I think it reveals the need to constantly be vigilant and, and not be complacent. Right. Um, I think, you know, and I, 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 you know, I was around this time, so I understand why people were very excited when Obama was elected, especially the first time, but I think sort of not, um, not stopping there, right? Because again, of course, like the other, the pendulum swung back much further, right? And so just kind of always being kind of, um, yeah, just always being kind of, not being complacent and always being vigilant about, about what's going on. Yeah. I think it's a lesson there. So if you were to stumble across this podcast, what would you be hoping to hear from other professors across the country, other researchers, and potentially students about their experiences of learning and teaching right now in this era? 
Um, I'd probably be interested in, I mean, probably just, you know, speaking of my own, from my own personal identity, sort of how different, how our different identities are implicated in this period. I think one of the things that's been a little tricky for me is to sort of um, navigate my role as a professor um, and mentor to students with sort of my own experiences as, you know, a minority as a woman and being a minority as a woman and also being a minority as, as a Black American, right? And I think, you know, um, sometimes our experiences aren't the same or all the same or our positions are all the same just because we're all faculty. I think there's a lot of differences in the experiences of faculty, particularly in terms of sort of black faculty that I've been in, uh, I've been in touch with during this period. So I guess I'd want to hear more about how, you know, our own sort of marginalized identities kind of impact our ability to, to do these other roles that we have, being a professor, being an instructor, et cetera. Great. Thank you. Those are my formal questions for you. Oh, okay. We just talked all the way through. So was there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you were really hoping to address today? Well, I guess I, you know, since, uh, you know, this is sort of, we sort of uh, talked about this in brief, but like kind of going back to the kind of protests that have been happening the last few days, which of course, like, you know, that happened after you, you initially approached me. And, and so, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks and the next month, how long this will be going on. But I think I've been particularly affected by that um, the last few days. And I think it's made it very hard to um, concentrate as a, as a faculty member um, and sort of just seeing um, all of the sort of violence and structure around me and thinking and thinking about all the communities that are devastated and you know there's obviously implications for both our undergraduate and graduate students who you know may know people or are involved in the protests themselves um, live in these communities and so you know I think it just it, it really to me shows how these sort of fixed lines that we draw between like you know uh, work life and personal life are often just not the case, uh, you know, because you're just you're, you're just who you are, wherever you are, and these boundaries are kind of just much more blurred and fluid. Um, so I think, you know, I think COVID reminded me of that in a different way, but I think especially the events of the last week um, made that made that relevant. And I think, you know, also about, um, you know, when I teach again in the fall, really incorporating a lot of these current events into my, uh, directly into my curriculum, into my syllabus, because I think it's really important to use this moment. I, mean, I think sociology is always relevant, but I think especially it's important to, to use this moment to think about these inequalities we have, especially by race, because I, I teach about those inequalities, but and sort of the origins of them and where these ideologies come from, like where these discourses come from. And I think you know, so I was just sort of just thinking about what you were saying earlier about um, researching the civil rights movement. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me following a lot of the, the news that's come out in the past week is um, the ways in which many Americans completely misinterpret uh, what the civil rights movement was, what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's ideology was, um, you know, and sort of misappropriate ideas of nonviolence um, that just are historically accurate and sort of I think it's really interesting to step back and think about you know why why do we do that like why do we keep doing that right um, I don't have an answer but <laughs> if I did it yet but, uh, but I think it's it just makes me think about like it's so interesting that like with all the historical work that we have on you know just specifically Martin Luther King but just any part of the civil rights movement more broadly why why we still make these kinds of mistakes, why we still rely on these inaccuracies, why we still have these sort of weird perceptions of, you know, what the civil rights movement actually was, what it was like to actually live during that time. In my, um, in my, one of my undergrad classes, I always show this, uh, include this poll from Newsweek 
that basically shows um, Martin Luther King's approval rating, um, I think maybe like a year before he died, and then his approval rating in like 1990, the early 1990s. And it's dramatically different. And students are always really shocked because they came up of an age where there's a, you know, a federally recognized holiday. Um, you know, he's quoted all the time by, you know, everyone in school, by company, you know, so they, like, it's like totally dumbfounding to them that he was so, so he was so, he was so hated uh, before he was assassinated, right? And, but I think that that's like something that we have to keep reminding ourselves of when we interpret what's happening presently. Absolutely. I mean, that's the classical narrative structure, right? That it's mm-hmm. erasing all the new right. ones. Right, yeah. exactly. And I think that that's something that we as instructors really need to bring to the fore. Yeah. And I wonder if you have this feeling, because I, I do. As a historian, I can almost intellectually float above what's happening in life. And, and intellectually, I get excited, right? It's like, oh my gosh, this is history. It's really happening. It's just right. like Jacqueline Dowd Hall says. It's the long yeah. time. Like, <laughs> right. I get all excited. Right. And then right. I come out of reality and I'm like, I'm living through this. This is horrible. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I was just having a conversation with one of my mentors late last week and sort of thinking about like, you know, when I was younger, I always wondered what it was like to, you know, go to work with during the civil rights movement like to sort of right. like have a job why there's all these things are happening around you and now and then I was sort of like oh I feel like I'm in that moment right now like mm-hmm. what does it mean to just like you know have you know I, I live comfortably I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways I have my career that's pretty much secure you know what does it mean to do that when all these things are happening around us and I'm still trying to figure that out for me personally but I, it, it just sort of reminded me I was like oh this is kind of what it must have been like on some level and you're yeah. participating whether or not you realize it yeah, no, totally. And I think it's interesting to think about, I mean, we're also having these conversations as professors as to like, you know, restructuring the classroom in, the, in light of COVID and doing all these things. But, the, you know, of course, there have been more destructive periods to, co- you know, more destructive things that have happened to college students in earlier periods, right? Absolutely. So this is just another example of that. Yeah. Well, gosh, I am just delighted we got to talk today. I have loved hearing your perspective and and your sociological perspective, but also just your human, you know, experiences. It's so powerful. So Dr. Beeman, where can people find you? Do you have a social media presence? Where can they find your book? Yes. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Jean, J-E-A-N, 23Bean, B-E-A-N. Um, and so I, I post and retweet there uh, pretty often. And then uh, my book's available at, at you know, any independent bookstore um, or at the University of California Press website, Amazon. Great. I'm going to link to that. Great. Thank you. Well, that's wonderful. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are on Twitter and Instagram, SMCC History, South Mountain Community College History. Okay. Okay. Um, We'll link to your info in the show notes. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you for the lovely invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation. You can find us at SouthPhoenixOralHistory.com, on Instagram at SMCCHistory, or send us an email at HistorySouthMountain at gmail.com. Music provided by Jake and Emily Speck.